Well, good morning. You guys might remember that uh, we're going to be getting into 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning, so you can go ahead and open up your Bibles and navigate there. And In a way, this is a little bit of a continuation of what Paul began uh, towards the end of chapter 2. Michael mentioned to us that Paul was extremely concerned about um, some of the disorder and the chaos that was occurring in the Christian gatherings there at the church at Ephesus. And he was writing to Timothy and he was giving some instructions and um, he began to talk about the roles of some of the men and the roles of some of the women and in the interest of keeping chaos in order. And this morning we are going to look at what Paul says about the qualifications for elders. And next week, we'll look at what he says for deacons. And so, there's a couple things that I want us to think about first before we get really deep into this passage. Um, Paul says in verse 1 that it is a good thing, it is a noble thing, is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It is a fine work he desires to do. And so the first thing I want us to kind of think about first, before we get really deep into this, is that Paul certainly had men in mind for this role in the body of Christ. Um, he's specifically writing to Timothy, and it comes on the heels of what Michael shared with us last week. And so... We're not going to spend a lot of time on this male aspect. Um, Michael did a very good job of explaining to us last week um, what Paul's thoughts were with regards to um, women having authority over men. Um, how many of you have seen the original movie Top Gun? Remember when uh, they're getting berated? Is I think it's the Admiral's office, maybe. And they walk out and... Uh, I guess it was Viper's character says, well, that pretty much covers the flybys. That's how I feel about what Michael did last week. I was sitting there last week listening to him give the message and explain to us what Paul was saying, and I thought to myself, well, next week, I'm not going to have to touch that. That pretty much covers women having authority over men. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on that this morning. Um, And in fact, I felt really blessed because... Just last Saturday, our family uh, took on the endeavor, the task of doing a lot of log splitting. And we rented this really, really big log splitter. I sent a video to a couple of you guys. And this thing was super powerful. And it would just like come right down through these logs and just split them with like very little effort at all. It was pretty fun to use. But at one point, um, I was actually taking a log and uh, had my leather gloves on and was kind of putting it into the machine because it works vertically. Now, the machine wasn't in motion at all. And I take this log and I kind of go like this with it, and the force, I kind of ran my finger up into the actual wedge itself by accident and pinched it between the wedge and the log. Well, it's cold out. Things are kind of numb. You know, I'm like, eh, whatever. It's a little bit sore. So I keep working. We're splitting logs for a little bit. And like five or ten minutes later, I'm like, man, my finger still really hurts. You know, so I take my glove off. And my finger, I don't know if you guys can see this or not. 
It's just all black. And it's bloody. And it's, there's a big old chunk of skin that's flapping. And the glove is all bloody. And the blood pours out of the glove. So, you know, I take this, I take this chunk of skin and I throw it on the ground because I know it's not going to be sewn back on. And uh, I go to put my glove back on. And Susan is over, over here somewhere. And she's watching me. And she goes, oh, no, no, no. Do not put that glove back on. Don't cram your fingers and your hands back in there in that condition. So she made me go inside. She made me put a bandage, clean it up, and all that stuff. Um, I shared that today because last Sunday I was sitting back there. I was listening to Michael talk about how men have been created a certain way and women have been created a certain way. And I thought just yesterday was a perfect example of me being a dumb male, just wanting to cram, you know, my finger back into a dirty glove. And this woman, who's been made completely different than me, says, oh, no, no. You go inside, clean it up, put a Band-Aid on it, come back out. And so uh, this morning, we won't spend a lot of time talking about that. That's the first thing. Um, The second thing I want us to think about and keep in mind as we're working through our way through this passage is that Paul clearly has in mind requirements for elders, but this does not mean that these qualities are reserved just exclusively or explicitly for elders. I would encourage as we go through this passage that we remember that this should be a description of everybody in the body of Christ. What Paul is saying here is that this is non-negotiable for those who are in leadership who aspire to oversee those in the church. It is a must. But we should remember that this is an expectation that God has for each of us. And as we go through these traits and these qualities, we'll see, wow, that really should be something that represents my life as well, regardless of whether you're aspiring to eldership or anything else. Women, as you're teaching other women, as you're instructing at home, as you're doing the Lord's service, these qualities should be true of you as well. It's kind of like, remember in school when they told you that a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square? It's a little bit like that. So let's get into this. Our... Our time this morning, I'm going to break it down into verse 1. is basically just going to be a trustworthy statement. We're going to spend some time looking at just verse 1 and this trustworthy statement that Paul makes. And our second section is going to be verses 2 through 6, which is just going to be titled, Above Reproach. And then our third section will be verses, verse 7, A Good Reputation. So Paul says in verse 1, It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer or elder or bishop. It is a fine work he desires to do. So he says this is a trustworthy statement. This is faithful. This is reliable. It's stable. This is a truth that you can rely on. It's a, a principle of God. Right? You've heard the statement, You can take this to the bank. You know, Paul's saying, you can take this to the bank. This is a trustworthy statement. I think it's interesting that he even writes it that way. Um, I think sometimes he feels the need to reinforce these truths that he's espousing and provide this extra measure of reinforcement to what he is about to say or what he has 
just recently said. Think about 1 Timothy 2.7. We saw this a couple weeks ago. He says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. And he says, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. Isn't it interesting that he feels the need to, to say that? Romans 9.1, he says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. So I think at some level, he wants to just really, really hammer and reinforce that this is trustworthy. You can rely on this. And he says that in other places in his letters. But I think there's another aspect to this as well. He might be simply just calling upon the fact that his audience... Timothy and others at Ephesus would have heard this statement that it's a trustworthy statement that it's desirable for someone to aspire to oversight, to be an elder. Maybe this was a common theme or common thought that people held. We might say that same thing today. We might very well say, hey, it is a great thing It is a noble thing that someone desires the office of eldership or desires to be an overseer in the church of God. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. Look at verse 15 there. It says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. So he uses that same phraseology there to reinforce a principle and a truth that we would say should be self-evident. Right? Um, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 9. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Another self-evident truth. How about 2 Timothy 2.11? It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. And he goes on to that chiastic structure that we'll cover sometime. Look at Titus 3.8. Titus 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that these, those who have believed God, may be careful to engage in good deeds. Another self evident declaration that Paul is calling upon. Think about our Declaration of Independence. How does that begin? We hold these truths to be self-evident. So, it might be that Paul felt a need to just reinforce that this is a trustworthy statement. You can believe me. I'm not lying. You can rely on this. This is stable. But it also might be that he's using uh, an axiom, if you will, of the day that was commonly referred to, reference stated, and saying, no, you guys have heard it said that this is a good thing. And that's true. He's reinforcing that this common statement, this common belief in his culture in that day, maybe at Ephesus, is a trustworthy statement. This thing that you guys have heard over and over again is true. But what I think maybe gets lost, both at Ephesus and certainly today in the church, is while it is certainly a trustworthy statement that someone should aspire to the office of overseer, do they always understand the weight that comes with that? And that's what Paul begins to then explain to Timothy. Is it is a trustworthy statement? Yes, you've heard it said. 
It's a good thing, and I agree with that. But Timothy, there are those who are operating in these capacities who don't fully understand the weight of the office and the role that they are occupying. Now, Timothy, let me tell you what this person should look like. Let me tell you who should be in these positions of authority over God's people. The NASB says, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires. That might be what a lot of you are using. But there's various translations, and they render it somewhat differently, but generally the same. But I thought there were some interesting variations. Uh, The Good News translation says it's an excellent work. The Contemporary English Version says it is a worthwhile work that he desires to do. And then the NIV and the ESV say it's a noble task. Isn't that interesting? It is a noble task when someone desires or aspires to the office of overseer. And I think something that we need to remember is it's not just the aspiration or the desire that's noble. He's certainly referring to the work. He's certainly referring to the role, the responsibilities that an overseer of God's people is given charge with. And that, I think, is what is lost a lot in present-day culture. That people who are leading God's possession, those whom God has bought and purchased with His own blood, they forget how big a responsibility, how important a responsibility that is. Turn to Acts 20. Keep your finger in 1 Timothy, obviously. Turn to Acts 20, verse 28. Acts 20. Verse 28. This is Paul giving a charge to some of the first elders and deacons at Ephesus. The very location that Timothy is at when he's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy. He said of this to these first elders. These were some of the people whom he may have seen at the end before he was headed to Rome. This may, this may have been his last time seeing them, and this is the charge that he gives them. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now I want us to think about three things that Paul says here. He says, elders are to be on guard first for themselves and then for all the flock. David, I think maybe you mentioned this a couple weeks ago. What do the flight attendants tell us when we get on flights with regards to our O2 masks? They say, first you put it on yourself so that you can then help others around you. Is that not true of leadership in church? People in places of authority, people who are overseeing others, whatever capacity that may be in, should we not first be guarding ourselves so that we can then guard and shepherd all the flock of God? All the flock, he says. Not just some. So the first thing he says is be on guard for all the flock. The second thing he says here is that the Holy Spirit has called you to this role in the body of Christ. 
Elders and deacons, you have been called, he says. If your desire is real, it's not rooted in the flesh, then this is the Lord's doing and not yours. Think about that. So therefore, elders, overseers, people in places of leadership, be careful that you don't become starry-eyed with this role. Be careful that you don't become starry-eyed and uh, in love with the idea of having a title. Or, dare I say, lording this responsibility over others. Remember what James said? Chapter 3, verse 1. He says, let, let not many of you be teachers, because you know that we incur a stricter judgment accordingly. And what's interesting about the tense that he uses there is, kind of implies that some of you should not become teachers, and others of you should stop teaching. There are those of you who are currently leading and teaching others, and you're leading people astray, and you better stop. Because you could incur a stricter judgment. And what we know, and what Paul is going to go on and tell us here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, is that that judgment not only comes from the Lord himself when we see him face to face, and we have to give an account for how we led his people, but it also comes from the outside. Right? Judgment can come upon those speaking and leading in the church from the outside world when they hear what is being said. So James says, there's some of you behaving this way and you better stop. You shouldn't be teaching. The third thing we see just in this Acts 20 verse 28 is that the church belongs to God because he bought the church with his own blood. He says, Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Church leaders, overseers, those operating in positions of authority are simply to be stewards of what God has entrusted to them. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Keep your finger, keep your finger in Acts. We're going to come back to that. Keep your finger in Acts, but turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 4. Peter says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Think about that. Peter says to his audience, you are to be shepherds, you are to lead by example. God has entrusted to you for a time his possession. Imagine, imagine for a moment, and this is going to take a stretch. Imagine I own a Ferrari. And uh, I'm going to lend my Ferrari to Nate here. Now we all know we wouldn't lend him a four-wheeler because he's going to throw it off a gorge. But let's assume that he's responsible 
to be lent my Ferrari. I'm going to say to him, Nate, I'm going away. This is yours to drive, to enjoy. Here's all I ask. Take care of it. Rotate the tires. Change the oil. Try not to get it scratched in so far as it is in your ability. And when I come back, I expect to find my Ferrari in good condition. That's all I ask. Just care for it as if it was yours. Isn't that kind of what Jesus has said? I'm going to give you the tools. I'm going to give you my word. Leaders, give me my church back in good condition. That's all I ask. Unblemished, uncompromised. I don't want it all bashed up. I don't want a jalopy when I come back. That's it. You know, we all like nice things from time to time, right? Every once in a while, each one of us splurges on something, and that's an okay thing. But there are many times where we're at the store, and we pull something off the shelf, and we look at it, and we go, ooh. And then, then we look at the price tag, right? We go, oh, no thank you. And we put that back on the shelf. Maybe that price tag is sometimes just a little bit too much for us. I want to remind us for a moment that if you could look in the mirror, if you could, if you could flip yourself around somehow in reverse and look in the mirror, you know what your price tag says on your life? It says, Jesus' blood. Now think about that. There's stuff that we put back on the shelf because it's too expensive for us monetarily, and we should. But the price tag that is on each and every one of our lives says, Jesus' blood. Now how expensive is that? That is God's possession. We are God's possession. And when God calls somebody into a position of oversight, in whatever capacity that may be, that's the understanding that you should have. When He calls you into that position to lead others... It's imperative that you understand those people that I have been entrusted to for this moment in time are wearing a price tag that is priceless. I don't think the elders at Ephesus, when Paul needed to write this, understood that. I don't think, certainly the Western church today completely understands that. Think about what we see out of church leaders. Think about what Jesus said when he was referring to himself as the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. And he was contrasting himself with both the religious leaders of the day who had been entrusted with God's word and were supposed to be leading God's people and be an example. And they were failing at that. But even more than that, he goes on to say that I am not like the person who is hired to watch over somebody else's flock. And what does he say about the hireling? What does he say about the person who's hired to watch over somebody else's flock? He says, at the first sign of danger, as soon as the wolves come in, what does that person do who's just simply hired? That person flees, that person runs, that person heads for the hills. Right? Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. God has asked people who have leadership in the church to be good shepherds like Jesus himself is, to care for God's flock.
Go back to the Acts passage, please. Go back to Acts chapter 20. You're going to get there faster, hopefully, because you kept your finger there. Unlike me. Look at what Paul goes on to say after verse 28. In verse 29 and 30, he says, Elders, guard the flock, guard yourselves because you're shepherds. Because, in verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So the first point that I really want us to remember this morning after this initial statement that Paul has made about the desire to lead in God's church is that for each of us, the desire to lead God's people is truly a noble aspiration. But the weight of the responsibility must be understood. For each one of us here this morning, the desire to lead God's people is truly a noble aspiration. It is. But the weight of the responsibility must be understood. Now, our second section this morning. Paul is going to say in verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. Before we get into this, I just want to kind of mention that I said our third section would be verse 7, have a good reputation. These are the bookends, if you will, that Paul gives for the qualifications for eldership. He basically gives us two things. He says, this person should be above reproach and should have a good reputation. If you were to ask Paul, Paul, you said a whole bunch of things in between there, but if you were to boil it down to some bullet points for us, um, what would you say? I think he would say, above reproach and good reputation. And everything he's going to say in between become traits and behaviors and examples of what it means to be above reproach. You with me? When he says, be above reproach, everything that follows... It's going to be an example of what it means. Everything in verses 2 through 6 is going to be an example of what it looks like to be above reproach. And then he says, oh yeah, and by the way, be of good reputation outside the church. With the world. Reminds me a little bit of Jesus when he was asked, hey teacher, hey rabbi, what's the the most important commandment? You know, if you had to boil it all down to to one, give, give us one. Give us the cliff notes. And he says, love God with everything you got. And love everybody else like yourself. Right? That's it. You do that, everything else is taken care of. You remain above reproach and of good reputation, everything else is taken care of. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, Prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. And he must be one who manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his 
own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. So what does Paul mean when he says that a man must be above reproach? Well, that term reproach literally means not able to be held. And I don't know if we've mentioned this here before at Renew or not, but Michael and I have kind of likened this example to a coffee mug with a handle, right? I mean, think about that. What Paul is saying that the primary qualification to be entrusted with God's people is to be above reproach and not have a handle on your life. Not have something that people can latch onto and, and say, oh, well, I know about him. He's behaved this way. Or, I saw him do something that nobody knows about. Or, I have this information. Or, whatever it might be. There shouldn't be a handle upon which somebody can just latch onto with regards to your reputation, your character. Something that you're not guilty of that you can be held accountable for. I think about um, a pastor that has done many events in our space downtown. And he came to us, came to me kind of separately from the events, and wanted us to do some architectural services for him and provide some, uh, some renderings of a possible uh, land plan and a building that he might want to do and some eye candy that he could get investors and the bank kind of interested and so on and so forth. And I cut him a really, really good deal, gave him these nice presentation boards, colored graphics, kind of cool renderings and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, kind of gave him a break. He didn't pay. I mean, stiff me on like a thousand dollars. I don't, I don't really care, but it, it's the principle, right? We've all been there. It's the principle. But here's my point. He's come into the space before or since then for other events where he's been invited because many of our social circles overlap. I always say hi to him. I always act very, very cordially to him. He's, he's welcome to come in. But when he gets up on that platform and starts talking. La, 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 I don't want to hear any of it. I just shut down. I don't trust him. I don't believe in him. Because I know what he's like behind closed doors. He's not above reproach. That's something I can grasp onto about his character. I know how you treated me, and I don't believe that when you treat me that way, and we've always been cool, we've always been good friends and cool with each other, that you're going to handle the word of God appropriately when needed. And so Paul goes on to say, hey, above reproach looks like these things. We're not going to spend a ton of time on these things this morning. But he says, the husband of one wife, he must be a one-woman man, in other words. Not married to multiple women, obviously, but not lustfully chasing after others either. He's faithful to his wife. Think about what we see in the news today. I think maybe one of the two biggest pitfalls of contemporary pastors here in the United States of America is either financial or sexual immorality or marital infidelity. I mean, those two things are what are bringing down pastors left and right in the church today. 
He says that leaders should be temperate, prudent, respectable. Now these are all separate words with varying meanings, but generally they point to an overall character of dignity, I would say. You know, if I were to kind of encapsulate these into one word, it'd be dignity. Able to make decisions clearly without emotion. Disciplined. Able to order your steps. That your life doesn't look chaotic. Right? When people look at somebody leading the church, there shouldn't be a lot of chaos and noise in their life. They should be able to make decisions clearly, rationally, be temperate. I think about Acts 6. When the elders, it was brought to them that the, the Greek Jews were being treated differently than the Hellenistic Jews. And, wait, Hellenistic Jews are being treated than the Jewish Jews, believers. And the elders said, we need to continue to preach the word of God. Not necessarily because it's more important, but because we can't let that go. That can't stop. We can't stop doing this to come over here and serve and do this and distribute food. So let's rationally, orderly, methodically, prayerfully figure out how to get this done. What a great example of temperate, prudent, respectable, and godly decision-making when they found qualified people within their ranks to serve and to help and to meet that need. He says that somebody above reproach is hospitable. These are two words in the Greek put together. Xenos and phileo, which we know is one of the words for love. Phileo is brotherly love. And so we get this idea that to be hospitable means being welcoming, loving, and caring to strangers. That's what that word, that second word means. It implies people maybe outside the church. Now think about that. It's pretty easy to love, welcome, embrace people within the church. But what about people outside the church? And isn't that something that we want to see of people in positions of authority in the church of God? How do they treat strangers? How do they treat those who are not easy to love, but maybe more difficult and harder to love? How do we treat people when, somebody, when they walk in here for the first time ever, maybe? Able to teach. This is probably one of the primary activities. All of these other things are traits, qualities, characteristics. This is probably the first activity. This in managing the household that Paul mentions here. This is one of the primary responsibilities that overseers in God's church have. It doesn't specify where. doesn't specify how often. It simply says, be able to teach. If you're able to properly dispense and dissect this, it will keep you above reproach. If you can handle this properly, it should translate into being above reproach in your life. We had a discussion on Wednesday morning at Pagab 
about the trend in the seminaries today and how seminaries are working so hard to crank out pastors who can run big corporations and operate as CEOs and so on and so forth. And one of the gentlemen in our fellowship said, well, I think it is important that they learn how to pastor people and care for people and do hospital visits and all that stuff. And we said, yes, it absolutely is important that they do that. But we, we, we followed that up and we said, but if they're taught to do this in school first, those other things will take care of themselves. If you're taught this and you know how to dissect this properly, then you will be a good prayer at the hospital. You'll be a good manager of people in the office. You will be a good decision maker when it comes to church finances if you can do this first and foremost. He goes on and says, uh, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, gentle, uncontentious, doesn't love money, manages his household. Well, we're going to come back to those next week because those double some of what he says about deacons. We'll spend more time on those next week. And then he says, must not be a new convert. Now think about that. While a new convert to Christianity might be super on fire for the Lord... Is a new convert really a good candidate to lead people? We've all been there. We were probably super on fire when the Lord grabbed us and gave us new life. Right? We've been there and we've seen others. We've seen others who had come to the Lord, given their life, found new salvation in Him, and were so on fire and they wanted to get involved in everything. And if an opportunity for being an overseer in God's church came up, God, they're raising their hand. They're right there first in line. Paul says, that's not a good idea. And we can only imagine the disaster that that can create. And we've seen it happen before. You see, a new convert hasn't had the time in the Word to be able to be a good teacher. First and foremost. Just right there. You don't know the Word of God very well when you first come to Jesus Christ. Even Paul himself went away and studied for a time after getting knocked off his donkey. The other thing is, a new convert is likely, Paul says here, to become conceited. Like I said earlier, starry-eyed with the idea of having a title and a role and maybe having some authority in the church. It's very easy to get a big ego at his laughing, a big head about having a role in an office. Man, you can love the limelight too much, too quickly, and become conceited. And Paul says, you would fall into the same condemnation that the devil faced. That's what took him down. He was second and wanted to be first. He was God's number one and said, eh, I kind of like to be number one. I like my role. Got a lot of authority. I want to be number one. And that was the condemnation that took the devil himself down. Paul says here, a new convert is likely to experience the same kind of downfall. It doesn't mean that they're excommunicated. It doesn't mean that they are kicked out of the body of Christ. It doesn't mean that they've lost forfeited salvation. He's simply saying the pride of being in a leadership role is not necessarily able to be handled by someone who has just come to salvation in Christ Jesus. So the second point that I want to kind of drive home for us this morning, God expects each of us to live a life that is above reproach. God expects each of us to live a life that is above reproach. Yes, he, Paul, is referring to the qualification 
for elders. But as we said at the beginning, he's saying this is a must. This is non-negotiable for elders. But this should be true of each and every one of us in the church. To have a reputation or a, uh, a label that is above reproach on your life is, should be what you strive for. You don't have to be at a pulpit to be above reproach. You don't have to have an exact title or a role. Everybody should see you and go, there's no handle to grab on to that person. Wow. I got utmost respect for that person. Our last section, he says in verse... Seven, And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So Paul clearly has in mind here the impression of people outside the church. He says, outside. Of course, the church is supplied, but he means, obviously, not in the ranks. And think about that. How do we conduct ourselves in public? Now, this is not necessarily about issues that we're standing for. This is about behavior and conduct. There's a difference. You see, we can stand for godly truths and principles, things that God himself is for, and we can do it by being complete jerks and create a bad reputation for ourselves, for the church that we're associated with, and ultimately for Jesus Christ himself in the public's eyes. It is true, the church, the world, should know what the church stands for. The world should know what we are for. We've talked about that a lot here recently, especially in our contemporary times, our contemporary culture, the things that we face and the things that as believers we have to stand against. Nothing wrong with standing against. We're called to do that. But how we do it is of utmost importance. And I believe that's what Paul has in mind here. How you stand for godly truths and principles is what gives you your reputation. Are you known for just being a real flagrant you know, hothead out there while you're protesting abortion? Or can you sit on a talk show, collected, well-spoken, and garner lots and lots of respect from people outside the church? and be of good reputation, who may not agree with your position, but respect you because of how you conduct yourself on your position, on God's position. That's what Paul's saying. That's a challenge for us, isn't it? Michael and I, at the Dietrichs, last Saturday, had a just brief little conversation. I don't know how we got into it. I said, and I'm going to rub some of you the wrong way for a moment. I said, I actually have a lot of respect for President Barack Obama. I don't agree with his policies when he was on office. And I don't agree with when he went overseas and some of the customs and the bowing and things like that that he did. But generally speaking, I believe that he treated the office of the presidency of the United States of America properly. I don't agree on his issues. I don't agree on his policies. But I have respect and I believe that he has a good reputation. Now let me contrast that with President Trump actually agree with a lot of his policies, actually like a lot of what he stands for, I'm not sure his reputation is a good one that I can get behind. 
I'm not sure that he always operated and represented the office of the President of the United States of America properly. See how that works? Think about Pastor Phelps. Anybody who know who Pastor Phelps was? Passed away in 2014. This gentleman is known. His legacy, what he is known for in the Christian culture and in the United States of America at large, believers and non-believers, is his protesting of, you know, homosexuality, abortion, all the contemporary issues that we're still fighting and will continue to fight. But the way in which he did it was nasty, dirty. I mean, you know, picketing. His, fam- his family is known as the most hated family in America. Like that's, that's what his legacy has left as a pastor of a Baptist church in Topeka, Kansas. His signs would say things like, God hates fags. Think about that. We all know God is against homosexuality. But how we share that and stand for that truth in public is critical. It matters. And it contributes to our reputation outside the church. And ultimately, ultimately a bad reputation outside the church ends up leading to being reproachable in the church. Isn't that interesting? If somebody outside the church can say X, Y, and Z about you, that ultimately compromises your leadership inside the church and no longer makes you above reproach. So the last point I want to make this morning, representing God in ways that are not godly results in bad reputations. Representing God in ways that are not godly results in bad reputations. We ultimately end up discrediting ourselves. We discredit our church. And we discredit the name of Jesus. And so, I mentioned this morning, as we began, that one of the things I wanted us to just be mindful of as we worked our way through this passage this morning was that although Paul had has elders in mind and the qualification for elders, we need not stop there and go, oh, you know, doesn't really apply to me. No. This should be true of every believer. The activities of teaching and leading in the church for everyone is a super high calling. It's a huge responsibility and it's not to be taken lightly. Second thing is that God expects us to live above reproach. He's given us the tools. He's given us His Holy Spirit. But we must still diligently endeavor to live lives that represent the calling that we've received. And God expects each of us to stand for godly principles in respectful ways that produce a good reputation for us, for the church, and for God himself. Amen.